We've been in a series in Romans called um, Overall View is the Sweet Spot. And I've just been, as I was worshiping and thinking about the message this morning, I was kind of thinking that um, what I want to bring this morning, just to kind of give you a, a heads up of application beforehand, is I hope to bring the sweet spot or the essence of Christianity. This is what Christianity is, is what I hope to preach this morning. Now, you can apply that in a couple of different ways. Um, one is... If you're not a believer, if you're seeking to get connected to Christianity, to God, to the kingdom, um, listen this morning, pay attention. I hope to, I hope to preach that. The other is, uh, hopefully, all of us are encountering people in our spheres of influence who are not believers yet, and we can, sometimes we wonder, what, what is the message that we bring to them? What is um, what I can preach to someone, preach, you know, in small quotes, I guess, when I'm interacting with somebody else? What is the message of Christianity? Pay attention this morning, I hope to bring that. And also, I firmly believe that when we come to faith in Christ, it's not just a one-time faith encounter with God, but that faith, and especially how it works out, the salvation experience, if you will, that happens one time, I guess, it should play out in our walk continuously. The repentance, the faith, the walking by faith, the coming to God, the looking to God, that should continually play out all the time. It shouldn't just be a one-time fire insurance that we get and then it, and we don't think about it again or we just feel good about ourselves and we can kind of live however we want to. So that's what I hope to preach, okay? We are going to be in Romans chapter 4, but there's a very um, special reason for us to look back earlier in the Bible because Paul is going to pull out some truths in chapter 4 that he's going to reach back and pull from the earliest reaches of the Jewish faith. So I'm going to I'm going to be in Genesis 15, I may jump around Genesis 12 through 15. So if you want to turn there, um, I'm going to bring some words from there initially. Let me um, confess a little weakness to you guys this morning. I really, really, really like movies. Sometimes to my own detriment, um, I have a, a, a lot of responsibilities. I have a lot of uh, things that are due. I have a lot of deadlines in my life. I'm in a seminary, so I have a lot of papers that are due and writings and da 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 all this stuff. And quite often, I'll turn the TV on just to have some noise on in the background. And if there's a good movie on, it is, it's just really difficult for me to pay attention to what I'm supposed to be studying. I just get drawn in. Even if I've seen the thing 50 times, I'm, uh, they played Shawshank Redemption last week on AMC, and I was, every night I was catching it, watching, tuning in. I've seen the thing 50 times. Like, the weekend before, they played the uh, Godfather series, and I've watched it 50 times, but I'm still tuning in again. I don't know if anybody else is like that, but I love movies. Some of my favorite movies are those movies that start out where they'll show you like a prelude, um, something up front, and they get you this little storyline going, and then they jump to the future. And through the future story, you clue in, oh, that's what that, pr that prologue was about. And the prologue plays itself out in the main part of the story, but you get the whole meaning. There's a, a greater kind of um, a meta narrative that the director or somebody's trying to say. This is what I'm trying to say. I love those movies, you know, the, and um, The Godfather, the second one. They, they go back and forth between how Vito Colleoni. Um, became the godfather back in the day, way early when he first came to America, and then how it plays out in his son, you know, much later on, the, the, the fallenness and the broken nature of humanity and all is definitely seen in there, but jumping back and forth. And I think that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm going to give you guys a prologue, a little pre-story 
to what's happening in Romans chapter 4. So if you can think with me of this movie scene, in your mind's eye, picture the camera, okay, zooming or wide angle on the earth, the whole earth, and you can see everything, and it's going to slowly zoom into a particular part of the earth as you watch it. You know, I, I picture uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life starts out like that. It's a big picture of the earth, and um, my movie's in color. Yours may be black and white, however you want to do it in your mind's eye, but it focuses in on the, on the Middle East, the middle, the center part of the earth there, and it focuses in. You see Africa, you see Iraq and all these places, and it's focusing in. Now, in my movie, it's like a map, and so it's labeled, so you know exactly what you're looking at if you didn't know that part of the world. So you've got the Tigris and Euphrates River, and it's got this little dot called Ur of the Chaldeans, all right? And that's where the, the, the camera is centering in on this map, but as it gets closer and closer, you can start to see little uh, tents or, or huts or whatever they were built back in the day, and as it gets closer and closer, you start to see people moving around on the streets, and it... Oh, you notice the camera is following this certain family. It's, it's this uh, man with his three sons, and the, the camera is going to follow that family for a while. And, oh, one of the sons dies, and the father has to bury him, and then the father takes that son's son, so it would be his grandson, is raising him. And, and now the family parts. Um, one of the sons with the dad goes to another city, and one of them stays behind, and the, the grandson goes with the granddad, and the, his, who would be his uncle, they travel to another city. You can't, in my mind, you can kind of see the dots going up where it shows the city they're going to, Haran. So they leave Ur and they go to Haran. They live there for a period of time. And then the grandfather dies. And so the son and who would be the grandson or his nephew, they're there. And then in one of the most poignant scenes in my movie, in my mind's eye, there's a vision that this guy gets from God. And you know it's a vision of God because it's like this glowing part in the upper right-hand corner of the scene that's kind of like Charlie Brown, you know, wah, 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 wah. You can't hear it because in my movie there's just music. There's no talking. It's just music, and you're just watching what's happening. So God is giving this guy a vision, and he's pulling out a map going, you want me to go where and do what? And the map says, go to a land I will show you. That's where I want you to go. And so he packs his wife up, and she's like, we're going where? And the nephew's like, we got to go what? we got to do where? we got to go where? And he said, he's, you know, he's arguing. But they take off, and they go, and the map shows they're going to Canaan. Okay, so they go to Canaan. He's worshiping God in Canaan. Uh, there's a, as the story moves along, there's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt. There's some interaction with the king in Egypt with his wife. It's kind of crazy. Um, but he leaves Egypt. He goes back to where he was originally at in Canaan. There's a scuffle. Uh, where the grandson, who's the, his nephew, really, is his nephew is captured by these kings, and he goes and rescues him and frees him and establishes him again. And that's the story of Abraham, okay, in a nutshell, where we're at in Genesis 15, okay? Now, in my movie, as it gets down close to where we're going to read in Genesis 15, you see Abraham noticing all these other sons of the tribal leaders around him all these other tribal leaders have sons and they're able to pass down all their inheritance and their wealth and the cattle and all this stuff to their sons but he doesn't have a son and he's noticing this and he's contemplating it and that's where we pick up in genesis chapter 15 verse 1 it says after this the word of the lord came to abram in a vision the word was do not be afraid abram i am your shield your very great reward but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? 
And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside. God took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you could count them. Then he said to him, like that, like the stars, so shall your offspring be. And it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham looked around and he said, I've, I followed you, God, wherever you wanted me to go. I left everything I knew. I took my family with me. We went to this place. We've gone all through these challenging times. I followed you. I've been faithful to you. But I don't, and you've blessed me. I've got cattle and sheep. I've got an army of people that I can send out at my disposal. But I don't have anybody to pass this down to. In effect, he was almost saying, what's the point of all this if I can't give it to somebody? All these blessings, you know. And he couldn't figure out how it was going to work out. Now, God had told him, in our Bible, it's a few chapters over. For him, it was probably 20 years before. God had told him already that all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your seed and the people that will come through. He had already told him that, but he's wondering, how is this going to work out? Sometimes in our lives, we come through these, these situations where we don't see how it's going to work out. We can't figure out in our mind how our situation is going to come out for good. We don't know how it's going to work out. We can't figure it out. We may be kind of wrestling with God. And that's where Abram was. Abraham was. And God gave him this word. He said, this is how it's going to work out. You are going to have a son. And from him, you'll have so many descendants that it's like the stars in the sky. And Abram at that point could have been incredulous or he could have been like what I don't know God or he could have just walked away and not responded at all but he didn't he believed God it was by faith there wasn't any actual physical thing God required him to do he didn't require him to go out and conquer this territory or accomplish some great deed it said he believed God it was by faith and God credited it to him and we're going to talk a little bit about more about what that means he credited it to him as righteousness that's the backstory, okay? That's the, the, um, the prologue to Romans chapter 4. So if you turn back over now to Romans chapter 4, we're going to see Paul um, hearkening back to this story in a couple of ways, a couple of times. Now, they teach us in seminary whenever you come to a passage to look at it and ask some questions about it like, what is the writer writing this for? Why is he writing this thing? I've looked at this, and I think one of the reasons that in Romans chapter 4, what Paul is going to be doing here is he said some things beforehand in the first three chapters that may be um, inflammatory to Jewish sensibilities or, or some Jewish people who may have been reading this who may be saying, how can you say that? And, and some of his enemies are, are making claims about Paul's claims. They're saying this is what Paul's saying. And then Paul has said a couple times, that's not exactly what I'm saying. But he said some things that, that are rather scandalous to the Jewish mindset. Uh, back in chapter 2, he had said, a Jew is not a Jew who is a Jew outwardly or by circumcision or a physical Jew. A Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And that might have sounded very strange. What do you mean, an inward Jew? What is that all about? You know? And he said um, in another place in chapter 3 that, um, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. You don't, you're not declared righteous by doing what the law says. And Jewish people might have been like, what? 
I mean, that's what God gave us to do. And now you're saying we're not made right by doing what the law says. Paul, what are you saying? So he's, he's beginning to say in chapter 4, beginning to hearken back to some of the heroes of the faith. And to say, look, what I'm saying is the same thing that they did. I'm not saying some um, radically different thing from what God has already been doing. All right. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read verses um, 1 through 15. Or, and maybe just a, a little bit in, in verse 16. But you'll see where I'm going. What then shall we say that Abraham our father, Abraham our father discovered in this matter? If in fact... Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness may be credited to them. And he is also the father, father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who are also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. God says, therefore, the promise comes by faith. God says, I promise you, it's by faith. He says, I promise the way that you enter in to my promise is by faith. The way that you acquire or appropriate or put on the things that I've promised to you, it's by faith. In the Bible, one of the words that is, is kind of used simultaneously in the same way as promise is covenant, especially in the Old Testament. Covenants and promises are synonymous. They're the same thing. When, you, when God's making a covenant with someone, he's also making a promise to that person. Or, that, or sometimes it's between two people. They make promises to one another. So it's a big deal. A promise or a covenant is a big deal. Such a big deal in our Bible. You have the old promise, the old covenant, the Old Testament. And you have the new promise, the new covenant, the New Testament. It's such a big deal that the whole Bible is broken up into these two different promises or covenants, if you will. And Paul is saying throughout all of it, and that's what he's going to prove here with his logic and reasoning of the scriptures, throughout all of it, the whole Bible, you enter into God's promises and God's covenants by faith. I do like uh, Romans chapter 4 because it pulls together um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 
a couple of passages in Scripture. Well, there's several instances in the New Testament that I feel like just open up the whole of God's Word. One of those is, is Luke 24 at the end when Jesus has been resurrected and He appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then He appears again in the upper room and it says He opened up the mind to, their minds to understand the Scriptures and how everything written by Him by Moses and the Law and the Prophets must have found its fulfillment in the Messiah. And to me that just shows everything in the Old Testament is found to be true in the New Testament and there's a unification of the Old and New Testament. Uh, there's several other passages. I love Hebrews chapter 1 uh, where it says in various days God spoke in, in, numer- in previous days God spoke in various ways through his prophets and teachers and, and uh, it may say the law but it says now in these latter days he has spoken to us through his son. And to me that just shows how in the latter days this is how God spoke but now he's making it very clear through his son the unification in scripture. I see that in Romans chapter 4 too. Is he's going to show that it's all unified. There's no, there's no Old Testament God and a New Testament God. It's God, and He acts in the way that He acts in both covenants. It's the same. So He starts out with one of the, the heroes of the Jewish faith. He's going to say all this stuff that I've been saying is verified by the one that, that you hold as the originator of your faith, Abraham. He said, what did Abraham discover? What does it say about him? He, he wasn't made right with God, justified by works, by the things that he did. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This word credited, it means that it was, it, it, we could take it, and we do take it just as a common uh, business term. If anyone's in accounting, my wife started out in accounting. You have credits, you have debits. If you credit something into somebody's account, that means you're putting something into their account. Debit is taking away something from their account. So he's placing something in Abraham's account, which is righteousness. God is saying, by faith, by Abraham's faith that he placed in me, in my word, and what I said to be true, I'm placing righteousness in his account. When I see Abraham and I make an assessment of him and his account and his standing before me, I, God, because of his faith, have already placed righteousness upon Abraham. He is a righteous man. You remember the story about the, uh, I think it's the rich young ruler where he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, uh, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus kind of says, why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God. Kinda, and it, it, it's kind of an odd thing that sometimes when you first read that, you're like, what is he trying to say? Is Jesus trying to say he's a sinner? Well, we don't say that. We believe Jesus was sinless just like, and he's kind of leading that man to recognize there's nobody good but God. And if you're calling me good, what does that say about me? I'm the only good person that's ever walked on the earth. I must be like unto God. Jesus and God are the same. They're both holy and pure. But none of the rest of us are holy and pure. And we need to be that. We, to stand in God's presence and to be accepted by Him, we have to be good. One day when we stand before God and, and give an account of our lives, if we expect to live in communion with God throughout all the ages and, and live in His presence and stand with any kind of confidence before Him and not be cast out, we have to be good. I don't think we quite, I can't even articulate that as strongly as I want to. We have to be good people. Not just in some of the acts that we may have done here or there, or spot, you know, spotting of good acts throughout our life, in who we are. Philosophically, we, we use the word ontologically. It means who you, the essence of a person, who their being, what they are. We have to be good If you assess yourselves this morning, would you say that you and who you are 
are good. I would honestly say about myself, I, I can't say that. I know myself too well to say that I am good. I'm righteous. I'm not righteous. That's why I need God's righteousness accredited to my account. And that's what he did by faith. God says, I promise, it is by faith that I will credit righteousness to your account. God raises his hand and says, I promise it's by faith that you get my righteousness. The only way you're going to get it is by faith in me and my words. It's by faith that you get it. You can't work it. You can't please me enough to get it. I have to give it to you. And that's what he's going to say in these next couple of verses. He gives this example um, of a gift versus working for a wage. Now, if you were to, to take a job, let's say you got a new job in the city, and you worked at that job for four, five, six months, and every single day you showed up at 8 and you worked till 5, or maybe even longer, maybe you're zealous and you put in some more hours, but you went to work every day faithfully, Monday through Friday, for six months, and you got nothing. You poured your heart out into that job, and you got no, you checked your bank account every week, and there was no direct deposit. You got nothing. You wouldn't be too hip on that job, would you? If you're, not getting a, if you're working, but you're not getting a paycheck, you're not too happy about it. Conversely, on the other side, let me give an example of a gift, how a gift works. That's, we recognize that's not how working for a paycheck works. You work, you expect to get paid. But a gift is different. Let's say it was Christmas time. And you had family over to your house, your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters. You were all together. Maybe it's your parents' house, whatever. You had the Christmas dinner. You, for me, we always have coffee after dinner. You had your coffee. You, you were really enjoying yourself. And you sat down to the great time of opening presents. And as you get your present from your dad, he gives you his present, but he gives it with a scowl on his face. He's like, here's your present. And you're just like, okay, that's a little weird. But you open it up, and it's one of the, your favorite things. You're so happy he gave you this gift. Whatever it is your heart's desire at this moment, you get that gift, okay? And you say, thank you, Dad. Thank you for this wonderful gift. I really appreciate it. I love it. Thank you so much. And he said, well, it's my obligation. You're my son. I'm supposed to give you a gift. You wouldn't be too hip on that gift, would you? That's not how gifts work. Payments are expected to be given, and gifts are something that are freely given but with joy. And Paul is saying this is how faith and getting right with God is. It's not something God owes you. You can't work for it and expect to get paid for it like we do with work. It's a gift that God gives freely when we come to him by faith and we receive it by faith. He should give it, he will give it freely with a happy, with a joyfulness. God will give us this gift of righteousness. It will be credited to our account. Paul goes on to say David found the same thing to be true. And this speaks to me of this, what Paul is saying, the germination of the Jewish faith in, in, in David and Abraham. It continues on. It begins to grow there, but it continues on in the New Testament. And he said, what did David find to be true? David said, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count or credit against him. And in the Hebrew, if you were... That was written in Psalms. If you look at the Hebrew, the word that's count there is the same word that was used in Genesis 15 for credit. It means the same thing, but it, 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 it means the same word, but it's talking about two different objects that it's talking about. One is righteousness. That's what Abraham got. 
But David's saying, I don't want to get, I don't want unrighteousness to be credited to me. And blessed is the man who doesn't have his unrighteousness credited to him. So it's kind of, it's a positive and a negative. You want the one and you don't want the other, but yet we do the other. We walk in unrighteousness all the time. I mean, if we took an account, if we could see the ledger of how many unrighteous thoughts we had or unrighteous words we said or unrighteous acts we did throughout a day or a week, we would be aghast at ourselves. We don't keep that tally even though we do those things. We don't want to know. But David says that we recognize that. There's a part of us that recognizes that we do bad things, that we do sinful things that we ought not to be doing. And there's a part of every human that says that's got to be taken, that's got to be accounted for somehow. We don't want that to be held against us in the afterlife one day. We don't want those things to be held against us. And God says, I promise it's by faith that I don't count those things against you. I will not credit your unrighteousness to your account. I will absolve your account of all those unrighteous deeds that you have done. By faith, I will do that. And he calls us to have that same faith that Abraham and David had. Faith that we will get the righteousness of God. Faith that he will not count our wicked deeds against us. And the next section here, um, I had to wrestle through it a little bit and say, okay, it's, it's kind of a logical thing where Paul says, how did this faith come about? When did it happen? It's important. It's important when it came about. Sometimes order of events or timing is important. I, I thought about it as an example, uh, the uh, major league pitcher, a major league manager who has to decide when to bring in the relief pitcher. There's a timing involved in that. You don't want to bring him in too early. You don't want to bring him in too late. You've got to bring him in just the right time to close the game and win, and win the game. Or uh, maybe a better example might be the stock market, the buying and selling of of stocks. You really want to time that good. You want to time it where the stocks are at their lowest point, but you know they're about to go up. So you buy them at the cheapest that you can get them, and then you sell them at the highest point that they're going to go up. Timing is important. Or um, when something happens, I was, we was talking with um, Don earlier this morning, and we got to Dewey and I were talking. He was telling us a story about an assessor in, in uh, Jefferson Parish that everybody knew was going to win uh, this event, the, the, uh, the, the election. He just, and nobody ran against him. But then at the last minute, he, he pulled back and he said, I'm not going to run, but I'm going to put my son's name in. And his son ran. And his son, there's no opposition because everybody thought the other guy was going to win. Nobody showed up to, to put their name into the hat. And his son won, won the race. Timing. Order of events are sometimes important. When things happen. I work in computers. Uh, that's what I get paid to do. And if you don't, load computer programs in a certain sequence and a certain events, other computer programs that are prerequisites for them don't work correctly. Um, I love the movie Apollo 11, I think, with Tom Hanks. Apollo 13, thank you. Apollo, Apollo 13, I love it so much I forgot the name. But I love uh, that, that, that scene where they're up in the spaceship and they've cut off all these um, electronic uh, gadgets electronic things that the only ones they left on were the ones that keep them alive but they've got to turn them on in such a way that they don't blow the fuses and yet they are able to have enough energy to get back to earth and they've got this 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 other actor who was supposed to go with them but he didn't go with them because they thought he had the mumps or something and um he stays back and he's in the the simulation capsule trying to figure out how to cut the the different 
electronic things that they need to, to have to get back to earth, but they don't need all of them, that, and they have to cut them on in a certain sequence, a certain order of events. Because if you cut them on wrong, it's going to um, blow the fuses. And they, they have this amp meter, and they're watching the amp meter to make sure it doesn't go over. And finally, he gets it right. You know, and he was left behind just for that purpose, to get it right, to make sure the sequence of events happened just right. So Paul is saying here, I use those illustrations to say that Paul is saying the sequence of events are important. You come to God in faith first before you work out your faith. Works are important. What we do in God's sight, in God's kingdom, what we do, our acts of righteousness, if you will, how we live out the faith, it's important to do that. It is important to act as righteous as Jesus Christ was, as much as it depends on us, as much as we're able to do that. It's important how we live, is what I'm trying to say. But how you live, the things that you do, aren't going to get you right with God in the first place. That has to come through faith. Paul is saying the sequence of events is important. Faith comes first. And he says, what about Abraham? Didn't Abraham find the same thing to be true? God gave him the act of righteousness, if you will, of circumcision, that's codified in the law. It was also, um, if you were to go back to Genesis a few chapters later, Genesis 17, I think God said, you do this. Perform circumcision on yourself, on your son, on Ishmael, on your sons after him, on everybody in your household. Now, circumcision was a big deal, especially to Abraham, Abraham who was probably 90, 90-something-something years old, Ishmael, who was 12 or 13, and all his household got circumcised. That was a big act of righteousness. Now, I'm not going to go into what all circumcision is about and how it works. Jason will feed you that. If you want to know, Jason can tell you all about it after the service. I'll leave that to you, the pastor. But it's very painful, and it's a big deal. Later on in Genesis, uh, you'll see this, this deal where these, these, this group of guys uh, takes advantage of one of the, the sisters of Israel's sons, Jacob, or Jacob's sons. And uh, they want to take vengeance on them. So they say, well, if you want to be with my sister and marry her, you all have to be circumcised. And the whole city was circumcised. And while they're laying up in bed for two or three days in pain, they attack them and kill all the men in the city. So circumcision was a very painful thing. It was a very big deal. Even in the New Testament, um, and looking back in some of the literature that we have found from that day, there were many people who you, who, who you see in the New Testament called... Um, God followers, I think, or, or they respected God. You see that of, of um, some of the centurions and other people. But the reason they weren't Jewish is because they hadn't been circumcised. They didn't want to go through the circumcision right, but they did respect the Jewish religion and the Jewish faith, and they believed in God. They just didn't want to do that. So circumcision was a big deal. It was important to do what God said, but Paul was saying that is true, but he was declared righteous before he did what God says and lived it out, if you will, in circumcision, in the law, and what, what was supposed to be done. Faith came first. He gave his faith first, and it wasn't an act that he did, nothing that he performed. He just trusted God. Now, a little bit later, and I wrestled with this last part, 13 uh, through 15 in a little bit, what is the, the purpose, if you will, or the... the um, what is, God, what is Paul and God trying to say with the law? Right, first, God says, I, I, I promise that your righteousness is accredited by faith. And he also says, I promise that your unrighteousness will not be accredited to you by faith. 
And I think he also says here, and I promise, you've got to come to me through faith first. Works are important, but you've got to come to faith first because, I promise, the law or your, the things that you do are not going to ingratiate you to me. You're not going to please me or be seen as good in my sight by the things that you do. And I think that's the, this last section where it talks about the law and how the law was, uh, it brings wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. I wrestle with that some. I think what Paul is saying there is God gave the law, okay, from um, Exodus um, through, Genesis, through Deuteronomy, really. All those four books um, are all about the law. And how you live out the law. What's expected of the law. And the Jewish people took that, rightly so. And they lived it out in their religion. And, and they prescribed all these religious things that you have to do. That God indeed was prescribing through sacrifice. And this is how you approach me. But later on, God will say through the Apostle Paul, the law that I give cannot give righteousness. He'll say in, in a, uh, Galatians chapter 3. He says, if there had been a law that I could give that would have given righteousness, I would have given it. But there is no law, there's no thing that you can do to get you righteous. The law doesn't do that. The law brings wrath. When I tell you you must do this and this and this and this and this and this, a simple thing like don't lie. I'm amazed at how many times in the New Testament there's all these horrific sins um, that I'm not going to detail at the moment. You can see them in, in Romans. You can see them again in the, the last chapter. All these awful things that we think, I would never do that. I don't do that. And he says, he outlines all these sins. He says, if you do these things, you're not going to get into heaven. All these wicked things that we say, I'm not that kind of person. And then he adds in, or lies. If anybody's lied, you're not going to get into heaven. It says that in Revelation. The law, don't lie. And when we lie, it brings God's wrath. And it also says that, where there is no law, there's no transgression. I take that to mean that God, and he, he explains this. The reason I take it to mean these things is that he explains it a little bit better and further in the book of Galatians, but I'm not going to go all into it right now. We're not going to turn over there. But he says, the law was given as a tutor, as someone who teaches you how to come to me, how to come to Christ. The law, where there is no law, there's no transgression. Where there's nobody that says, don't do this and do this, and you do it, you do transgress the law, you break the law. That's when you know you need God's mercy. And, that's, and that is what it's all about. It's turning to God in faith and crying out for God's mercy. That's what it's all about. It's not all about keeping all these things. That's why the law was given, to lead us to the fact that we need God's mercy and we need His graciousness. And I think that's what, what Paul is saying here and that's what God is saying. He said, I promise that you can't come to me by working it all out. One of the... The unique thing, the unique thing about the Christian religion is it's not by merit, it's by mercy. It's not by what we do. If you count all the other world religions, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Islam, they all have the means of getting right with God is what they do. You follow the noble path. You um, keep the law in Judaism. You um, keep the five pillars of Islam. You pray every day towards Mecca. You, you go to the, on the Hajj. You tithe or you, you give alms there's, there's other prescriptions that you have to do to be right with God in Islam in Hinduism you don't want to um, have bad karma that will keep you in that transmigration process that you're trying to break free from you don't want to get that bad karma so you want to live right you got to live perfectly and live right that's what all, all the other major religions are about doing things 
to get right with God. Christianity says, no, it's by faith and God's grace that you get right with God. Now, I've left, I realized this as I, as I was preparing my message in the past couple of days, I realized I've, I've kind of left out one important piece of information. Faith is important. And we all say, uh, or often people will say, uh, I'm a man of faith, I'm a person of faith, I have my faith. And that's important. I've been preaching all morning, it's important. But what you have faith in is, is important. And I haven't said yet exactly what I'm talking about. What is it that you have faith in? Because Paul had already said that. Up in chapter 3, verse 25, it said, God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That is what you're placing your faith in. That's what we're placing our faith in, to become righteous. For God to credit righteousness to our account. We place our faith in Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice. His blood was poured out for our sins. He was punished for us. In order for God to say, look, I promise, I will not count your unrighteousness against you. I won't credit that to your account. We have to place our faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice. All our works that we may do that are good, that we should live out, but God says if you, it's important that you first, as a prerequisite, place your faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. And as I said earlier, this is the gospel message. This is what we bring to people, and this is what should play out in our lives. Our lives should continuously be about faith and faith acts. Even when we do those good acts, like meeting with others for growing and sanctification, like praying, like um, sharing the gospel, all these other things that are good acts, not lying, not sinning, um, I could enumerate many of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. The good things that we do. When those live out in our lives, they themselves are by faith. It continuously plays itself out in our lives. Eric, if you guys want to come up, I'm going to close. And pray over us. I'm going to pray for us that, one, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as Savior, if you haven't accredited His righteousness to your account by faith, I'll pray that you do that this morning. I pray that we will take this message to other people. This is the gospel message. It's by faith. It's not by works. And, and often, I, I think in, in this culture, there, there's a misunderstanding. There's been a misunderstanding for, for long ages, hundreds of years, about what church is and how works is related to faith. And I think we can bring that to people humbly and say, this is one of the things that I've discovered in Scripture. Have you ever read this? Have you ever discovered this? Pray about this and see if God may be speaking to you to you, we can bring that message to other people. But if we can continually walk around. One of the reasons that we live out what we live out is because God has credited righteousness to us. We can praise Him as we're about to do and continue to connect with that faith because He has credited righteousness to us. He does not hold our sins against us and our unrighteousness against us. And we have got it in the right order. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I just praise your name, God. I give you glory because you are the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Jesus. We recognize, God, that there's nothing in us um, that can totally and completely please you, God, as far as us living out or being some person that says, oh, God, you would say, oh, yes, come in and live with me forever and ever. You look at us and say, you're unrighteous people. You do things all the time. God, forgive us. I turn to you this morning and, and 
and say, God, forgive me for my unrighteousness. I ask you to credit righteousness to my account, God. Not to hold my sins against me, God, but to be gracious to me, Father. I repent. That's a big part, God. I repent of my sins. And I ask you to make me clean and to make me good like that rich young ruler said of you. I want to be like you, Jesus. And I pray that you will make me good in your sight and in your eyes. Make me a good person. And God, help me to live it out. Help me to live out my faith that I do have in you. Help me to show that to other people so that the Christian faith will be winsome. That people will see me. Though I, though I know myself, but people will see me as a good person and I will have an opportunity to preach the true faith to others, God. I pray for this church, God, this growing flock of believers, God, that we would walk by faith, that we would uh, appropriate the gifts that you have freely given us, God, to our account and continue to live that out in this community, in New Orleans, in the surrounding area. Thank you for the privilege of doing that. Thank you for the privilege of being on mission with you, God, and living out the faith that you germinated in our lives, God. I praise your name, God. I pray that you'll walk with us this week and help us to walk with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.